Well, good morning, Calvary family. We're going to be in Isaiah 40. Um, but as you're turning there, I want to encourage all of you to uh, stick around after this service for that important members meeting uh, as we uh, vote on whether or not uh, to call David Kanaversky as our senior associate pastor. At, as a reminder, at CBC, our associate pastoral candidates are interviewed by the pastors, then they are vetted by the Strategic Planning Committee, and then they're evaluated in depth by the elders. Uh, but it is the congregation that makes the final decision. And this is a very important decision in the life of our church as we're seeking the Lord's will, the Lord who is the head of this church, we're seeking his will uh, in this important matter. So make sure you stay after the second service so that you can fulfill your part of this very important congregational responsibility. Also wanna take the, the opportunity to pass on greetings uh, to you from our brothers and sisters in Christ in the country of Albania. Uh, that's where I was last week. I was attending uh, the board meeting of some wonderful ministries that are uh, doing some uh, wonderful work in some very needy places uh, in uh, this fallen world. And it was kind of a sentimental moment as well because my first in-person board meeting was also the final board meeting for one of my key members, uh, Dr. Bob Provost. And one of the highlights of the trip was having dinner actually with a friend of his, a retired Albanian government official. And this was the official who first invited Bob to come to Albania. And as we were having dinner, he told me that Bob, to his knowledge, Bob was the first American to visit Albania after the fall of communism. The very first one. And the way that happened is really a remarkable story of God's providence, God's providence working through bold faith. So I'd like to share it with you. Before the fall of communism, Albania was one of the most closed countries on earth. They didn't have diplomatic relationships with almost anybody. And they had a communist dictator who had vowed to eliminate all religion and all faith in God from Albania and make Albania 100% atheist country. And he ruled for many years. But after his death and then as the Iron Curtain began to fall, Bob Provost was in Vienna for some other missions meetings. And in his devotions, he read in the book of Revelation that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who worship the Lord and celebrate their redemption. And he thought to himself, that has to include the Albanians. And so I know that at some point, God's going to open those doors. Maybe it's now. And so he was praying that God would open the door to Albania and then he did something both simple and profound. After praying that God would open the door, he actually went and knocked on the door. Literally, he walked to the Albanian consulate in Vienna and knocked on their door. There was no diplomatic relationship, but he just went to the door and literally knocked. As he knocked, he hears a voice behind him saying, are you an American? This very surprised voice. Are you an American? He turns around and it was an Albanian consular official who was returning from lunch. And he said, yes, I am. And, you know, and the guy said, well, why are you knocking on our door? He says, I'd, I'd like to visit your country. This Albanian consular official, very surprised, invited him in and sat there in the reception room and had tea with him for several hours. They struck up a friendship, and over the coming months, that friendship developed, 
And so that man then asked a friend of his who was in the Albanian Ministry of Education to extend an official invitation to Bob to come to Albania as the first American officially into the country. He was invited to come and then to speak to the, all of the assembled officials from the Ministry of Education and they were in crisis at that time. The, the communist system had collapsed. Their school system was in absolute shambles. They didn't know what to do, what to replace it with. And at the time, Bob was serving as the vice president of the Masters University and so they invited him to come as a consultant to the Ministry of Education to share with them what had gone wrong and how to fix it. And so he's invited in, all of these government officials are there, and they ask him the question, what do you think has gone wrong and how do we fix it? The retired Albanian government official who invited him told me, as I was sitting across from him at dinner, he said, he said, at that moment, he says, I can't even tell you how scared I was. He says, I was sweating because though the communist system was collapsing, the communists still had the power and the secret police of that country were still very active. He knew they were in the room. He invited Bob and he had no idea what Bob was gonna do or say. He says, I was sweating. Well, what did Bob do? He picked up his Bible and he said, this book is the word of God. And I think this book tells you what has gone wrong and how to fix it. And then he read to them from Jeremiah 17, verses five through six. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. And when he read that, the minister of education stood up and said, that exactly describes where we're at. <laughs> so how do we fix it? Bob said, well, let's keep reading. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. And they responded very positively to that. They invited Bob to bring over professors from the Masters University to consult with their colleagues in Albania and help them reform their educational system. Out of that was born the Lincoln Centers, which have trained 90, over 90,000 um, you know, young Albanians in English and computers and uh, just a really marvelous um, open door that the Lord has brought. Interestingly enough, that dictator who had vowed to eliminate the last shred of faith in God in his country, this is a picture in front of that guy's house. And often we simply have little faith. We have a big God, but often we have little faith. Jesus said that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we'll be able to move mountains. And then he told us, he said, ask, seek, and knock. He said, knock, and the door will be opened for you. Now, we often kind of spiritualize things like that, spiritualize them to almost to the point where they have no practical meaning. I think that the Lord actually intended for a lot of doors to be knocked on. Ask. What did, what did Bob do? He asked. He prayed. God opened the door. He 
He sought, right? He sought out the Albanian embassy, found it, and found their hours, and then he knocked, and the door was opened. I remember one time I was with some Ukrainian evangelists in a Muslim city, and as we were walking uh, through that town, one of them pointed off in the distance, there was this huge compound, and he said, that's where their main political leader lives. As we were walking along, we all remembered Bob's example of knocking on the door of the Albanian consulate. We said, hey, let's go knock on the door. So we went up to the gate of this compound and we just knocked on the gate. It was a big metal gate. And we just knocked on the door and some armed bodyguards came to, to the gate and were very surprised that we had knocked. And, um, but we explained to them who we were and said that we would just like to talk to him. They told us to wait. They went away, and about 15 minutes later, they came back out and said, he'll, he'll see you. And uh, so they searched us, and we were invited into his home and had a wonderful opportunity to uh, just enjoy the hospitality, the wonderful hospitality of those people, and uh, to build a friendship with him and to have the opportunity to share the gospel with him and with his bodyguards as they were there with us. So the point is this. Sometimes we just need to knock, just literally knock on doors, And sometimes those doors have already in the sovereignty of God been prepared to be opened. We often don't do that and I think it's because we underestimate the Lord. Deep down, we don't really believe he'll open those doors and so we don't even knock. And that's why if we wanna be effective in our ministry, we need to be constantly reminded of the greatness of God, the greatness of God. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates fell will not prevail against it. When you understand the greatness of God, that empowers you with the type of bold faith that I think Dr. Provost exemplified as he just literally would knock on doors and the Lord would open them. William Carey is famous for saying, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. And if we don't attempt great things for God, it's probably because we don't expect great things from God. And if we don't expect great things from God, it's probably because we've lost sight of how majestic and sovereign and powerful and great he truly is. So our passage this morning, Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 31, is going to remind us of the majesty of God. He is a big God, a powerful God, a great God. So read along with me, Isaiah Chapter 40, beginning in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering." All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. 
He who is too poor for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that won't fall down. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired, and they will walk and not become weary. The main theme of this passage is obvious, and it is the greatness of God. He is high and exalted. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is immense. He is the glorious one to God the oceans are no bigger than a few drops in the palm of the hand are to us all the nations are like dust which he brushes off of a scale before weighing something much more important the text says that he sits above the circle of the earth and yes this is evidence that the ancients knew that the earth was round It says he stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and yes, this does mean that the expansion of the universe was mentioned in Scripture 2,700 years before it was ever observed by scientists. The text says he created trillions of stars, has named them all. It is because of the greatness of his power that they are there and that they exist. He is a great and mighty God. As we now through technology can see more of the universe and more of the galaxies we realize we serve a God for whom they are all like dust we serve a very great and mighty God now that fact has implications for us and I want to talk about three practical implications of the greatness of God number one stop controlling
him understanding who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding and the answer these are rhetorical questions the answer is obviously no one no one is his advisor no one is his consultant no one is his teacher and it's certainly not you but we all tend to be control freaks right we all try to act or pretend as if we can be in control of what happens in this world and in our lives in particular we desperately want to believe that if we're smart enough we're good enough we're careful enough we can make sure tragedies don't happen we can make sure everything goes well for us and for our loved ones we like to think that we have some semblance of control but any semblance of control is absolutely an illusion an illusion I want to just simply prove this to you. To control future outcomes, you must control the variables which produce those outcomes, correct? How many of those variables do you really have even the slightest influence over? Almost none. The variables which produce future outcomes include things like the weather, like the decisions of millions of other people, the rate at which rust affects machines, and the rate at which microscopic creatures multiply in your body at any given moment. And you have minimal to no control over any of it. So what control do you really have over what will happen tomorrow? To have control over the future, you would have to have control over all the variables which produce future outcomes. And it would take, if you think about it for a moment, both omniscience, knowing the variables, and omnipotence, sovereignty over those variables, in order to exert any sort of meaningful control over the future. So the point Isaiah is making is if you think you're in control, you are sadly mistaken. You are in a delusion, living an illusion. Who measures the water in the palm of his hand? Is it you? No. Who measures the dust of the earth? Is it you? No. Who is omnipotent? Who is omniscient? Is it you? No. You see, control, or maybe to use a more accurate theological term, sovereignty, since sovereignty requires omniscience and omnipotence, the idea that we can be in control in any meaningful way is ludicrous. So you grasp on to things with such a tight fist, but it's such a tiny little fist, isn't it? The reason we experience so much anxiety is because we want to be in control but deep down inside we know that's impossible we know that the world is not in our control our own life is not in our control even what goes on inside our bodies is not in our control you can't control what happens inside your own body much less anything external and greater than that So we experience anxiety because we want to be in control but can't and we experience frustration because we try hard to guarantee certain outcomes only to find out that it's all been in vain because we don't even know all the variables. You know, you make an investment, you research, you do all your homework, you think this is a sure bet 
and then you discover there was just this one thing you didn't know about that company. Just that one thing, that one variable. You can't control the outcome. The reality of life is what was described back in our last passage, Isaiah 40, verses six through eight. A voice says, call out, and then he answered, what shall I call out? Well, call out this message. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. All flesh is grass. That's the reality. We cannot be in control. So what's our only viable option? Our only viable option is to trust the one who is in control. That's our only viable option. We need to trust and obey the one who is in control. But instead of trusting God, we often try to retain some sense of control by nominating ourselves to be his advisor, right? It's like, if I can't be in control, I'll at least advise God on how to run things. We don't verbalize it out loud very often because it sounds so silly to give God advice. But our hearts are constantly trying to do this. We're constantly grumbling against God's providence in our circumstances. We're constantly trying to tell God what he should do, how he could run it better, and what he's doing wrong. Nothing's more out of place. Nothing's more silly than for a finite and fallen creature to tell the infinite and perfect creator how to run his universe. You know, it's, you know if you run a business, you know, can you imagine, right, like the fly on the wall piping up and saying, hey, you're doing it wrong. Let me tell you how it should be done. Verses 13 and 14, right? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselors informed him, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him in the way of understanding? He doesn't need advisors, especially not you. Romans 11 33 through 36 quotes this verse from Isaiah. In Romans 11 it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. You don't understand why God does things? Yeah, that's right, you don't understand. That's exactly what it says. Verse 34, he quotes Isaiah. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. You're not the source of the universe. You're not the means of the universe. And you're definitely not the destination for the glory of the universe. All of that is from him, through him, and to him. And the glory belongs to him. So stop trying to be a control freak. Instead, simply trust and obey God. Trust him with the faith of a child. You don't understand, you don't. A child doesn't understand, you don't understand, but trust your heavenly father. Don't try to be his advisor. Instead of trying to give him advice, start listening to his. 
Stop trying to be a control freak. Secondly, stop comparing. Stop comparing. You're not the center of the universe and God is not like any created thing. Look at verses 18 and 25. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? Verse 25 says, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Stop comparing God to the creation. You do not dare to compare the infinite one to the finite ones. You dare not compare the holy one to the unholy ones. These are not valid comparisons. And throughout scripture, God warns us against comparing him to created things. The gulf between the creator and the creation is not just a massive gulf, it is an infinite gulf. The infinite one is infinitely higher than the finite ones. And the holy one is infinitely more righteous than the unholy ones. In just a few chapters over in Isaiah 55, verse 9, verses 8 and 9, the Lord is going to say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is an infinite gap. The distinction between the creator and his creation, what we call the creator-creation distinction. This is so important that it was the first thing that Satan attacked when he tempted Adam and Eve. Remember in Genesis 3, 4, serpent says to the woman, look, if you disobey God and you eat of the fruit, he says, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. The first thing he attacked is the distinction between the creator and the creation. He told the creation they could be like the creator. You can be on his level, knowing good and evil. You can decide what's right. You can decide what's wrong. And you can be the lawgiver like God. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to think that they could be God's equal. And ever since that first temptation, and ever since that first sin, human beings have been trying to bring God down to our level, to the level of a created being, to think of him as if he's just like us. But what does God say? He, he says, you thought that I was just like you, but I will rebuke you and tell it to your face. To whom will you liken me? Who is my equal? The Lord says. You see, idolatry at its essence is equating God with his creation or trying to depict him with created things. And Isaiah is going to address the three most common forms of idolatry throughout world history. In verses 18 through 20, he's going to address the making of statues and the worship of physical idols. In verses 23 through 24, he's going to address the tendency of worshiping kings, princes, and celebrities. And in verses 25 through 26, he's going to address the tendency to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. In verses 18 through 20, Isaiah exposes the utter foolishness of depicting God using statues of gold, of silver, and of wood. He says, to whom will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman cast it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. If you're too poor, 
for the precious metals, you find a tree that you don't think will rot. You find a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that won't totter, that won't fall down. In other words, you make a God. You worship this thing that you've made with your own hands. In fact, you need a skilled craftsman to make sure it has a stable enough base so that your God doesn't topple over. Like you've got to help your God to stand up straight and not to fall. It's utterly ridiculous. And by the way, the making of statues and praying to them or as some people say, through them is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. It's forbidden throughout Scripture. And it doesn't matter what the image is uh, is of, whether it's the image of a golden calf or the image of some person from the pages of the Bible, an apostle or Mary or anyone else. To fashion out of wood and stone and metal an image and then to bow before it and pray to or through it, this is idolatry. It's not just worshiping wooden idols that it is wrong. Worshiping human idols is just as evil. In the past, people would worship the celebrities of their day. Who were the celebrities of their day? Well, it was the nobility. It was kings and queens, princes and princesses, dukes and duchesses. In our day, we still worship celebrities, just of a different kind. I want you to think of, you know, what we even call some of our shows. We call these talent shows American Idol. And what do people do with celebrities? Well, they follow them. Like we're, you know, we're supposed to follow Christ. People follow celebrities. People will just be so thrilled if, if they can write a letter to a celebrity and the celebrity will actually read it or if they find an opportunity to say something to a celebrity, even to shout it from a distance and to see that the celebrity heard their voice. They're, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're as excited for the celebrity to hear their voice as we should be to know that God hears our voice in prayer. They devote their time, their money, their adulation, the adoring crowds, the screams. You know, think back even to the beginning of mo- that modern idolatry. Remember with... Uh, why, why am I forgetting his name? Elvis, sorry. <laughs> Couldn't remember his name. <laughs> you know, sometimes as a preacher, you're like, you just go blank and you're like, what was that guy, you know? Now, see, I'm tempted to like, you know, you know shake a leg to remember it, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that would be highly inappropriate for our context. <laughs> Maybe my last sermon <laughs> if I remember it that way. But do you remember? It was like, there was a form of adoration that started then and continues now. Celebrity worship. Treating kings, queens, artists, actors, musicians as if they were little gods. Isaiah rebukes this in verses 23 through 24. He says, It's God who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. 
They've scarcely been planted, sown, or taken root in the earth, and God merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. He rebukes the statues. He rebukes the worship of celebrities or important people, and he rebukes the adulation or worship of the heavenly bodies in verses 25. To whom will you liken me that I would be as equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. So he systematically goes through, destroying all forms of idolatry. The worship of statues, the worship of important people, the worship of the sun and the stars. And he's reminding us that God is above them all. It's he who sits above the circle of the earth. It's he who judges, he who reigns, he who rules. He's incomparable. That means he's above you too. He is the center, you are not. Well, third and finally, stop complaining. Stop controlling, stop comparing, and thirdly, stop complaining. You are not forgotten. God has not ripped you off. You haven't gotten worse than you deserve. You've gotten better than you deserve. Grace has been extended to you. That's why you're still breathing, even having sinned against the Holy One. God has not forgotten you, and he has not ripped you off. Look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you see the two complaints? My way is hidden from the Lord. God's forgotten me. The justice due me has been neglected by God. God's not fair, and he's forgotten me. But notice the question. Why do you say that? Why? Sometimes we complain, and we never ask ourselves, why? Why do we complain? We all have these complaints at times. These are very common complaints. But why do we have them? The answer, according to this passage, is we have forgotten the greatness of God. Listen to how it's answered. Verse 28, do you not know? Haven't you heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired and they will walk and not become weary. So notice that the Lord's first response to our complaints is to remind us of what we already know or at least what we should already know. And that is the greatness of God. He is everlasting. He's Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. As the potter, he has absolute right over the clay. The clay has no right to complain about what it is, how it is made or what it is made for. Have you forgotten that you are a created being? Have you forgotten that your creator is the majestic one? Remember who you're complaining against. 
you know, when we complain, we're contradicting the truths that we know and that we claim to believe. So the Lord says, look, remember what you've known and what you've heard. He says, look, you say God has forgotten me. Listen, God is not some puny God who gets tired and forgets things. He hasn't forgotten you. And then after reminding us of what we already know, the Lord then encourages us with the precious words of verses 29 through 31. This great and majestic God gives strength to puny little us. He gives strength, verse 29, to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, vigorous young men stumble badly. Yet, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. This is an incredible promise. But notice that there's a couple words that aren't in the text. It doesn't say they will gain new strength right away. In fact, what it says, it says, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. To wait for the Lord means to patiently trust in him, to keep trusting in him and obeying him as long as it takes for the eagle's wings to come. So are you tired? Remember that God gives strength to the weary. Do you lack might? Remember, as the New Testament says, that his power is perfected in weakness. Have you stumbled badly and are struggling to get up? Remember that he gives new strength. But the way it is obtained is by waiting on the Lord, patiently waiting. So often, we, we, you know, we're tired, we're exhausted, we've stumbled badly, and we say, Lord, help me. And when the answer doesn't come in the next moment, then almost immediately we turn to some substitute. Well, fine, God, if you won't help me, I'll turn to drugs, I'll turn to alcohol, I'll turn to this, this sinful pleasure, I'll turn to some substitute that will give me the immediate gratification that I'm looking for. Who receives the new strength? Who receives the eagle's wings? It's those who wait on the Lord. I don't know how long you'll have to wait for your answer to come, but I do know that it will come. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. The good shepherd will make sure the weary, tired, stumbling sheep gets all the way to the sheepfold of the heavenly kingdom. And he will carry you with eagle's wings if necessary to get you there. So trust and obey for as long as it takes. This passage tells us we serve a great and mighty God, so stop trying to be in control, stop comparing, stop complaining. Instead, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And in the meantime, draw your strength from him, as William Carey said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Lord, Help us to wait upon you, to wait with patient trust. Lord, you have given a promise in this passage which we know will be true for each and every single believer. Lord, you will give new strength. You will carry us on eagles' wings and you will see us through to the end. You have promised to preserve and 
and to enable the perseverance of all the saints. And so, Lord, we are grateful for your love and for this encouraging promise. May we go forth encouraged and emboldened to live with bold faith, to knock on the doors that you've already predetermined to open. May we go forth with the boldness knowing that you will. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and let's respond together by putting our...